The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist, and I'm on a mission to find food truth and connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture. And today I'm really delighted to have a good friend and a fellow colleague in dietetics, Amanda Archibald. Amanda has dual areas of expertise, where on the one hand, she's a research analyst through the Mintel Group, and on the other, she does incredible food education work, teaching people, I think, about food through the very best way we know, and that's through taste. So welcome, Amanda. Thank you, Melinda. It's great to be back uh, talking to you again. I know. We've, <laughs> we, our paths cross every now and then, and it's always delightful. You know, I went to one of your food education sessions in Kansas City, and you know what I was so amazed with was how people seem to be so hungry to reconnect with food. Do you find that to be the case, too? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I think that a couple of things to answer that. The first is Michael Pollan did us a great favor, particularly me, because he gave us the words edible education. And with edible being a key part of how we talk to people about food, Mm -hmm. we have to put food in people's mouths to open their ears. And when you do that, food connects people. They're hungry for food knowledge. And we were recently doing an event in New York, and one of the gals who was kind of monitoring the event with us said afterwards, I can't believe that when we were cooking, how we came together as strangers around the table, and when we left, we were the best of friends. Yeah. And I think you saw that in Kansas City, too. I, I see that everywhere you teach. So I yeah. saw it in Kansas City. I saw it in <laughs> Connecticut. The magic of cooking food together and then eating together really is transformative. It is. It is. And it's emotional, too. And I think people don't realize, I don't know whether it's the food that's emotional or it's the fact that food is a platform for us to connect with each other, like you say. Mm-hmm. Yes. Now, you have a company called Field to Plate. Tell me how you went from being a research analyst, and I know you still do analysis of the market, but how did you go from being a, sounds like a left-sided kind of brain thing, to very um, sensual kind of food education? That goes back to a couple of things. Growing up in Europe with a kind of food-centric family, if you will, that was where the art of how I think came into into my work. And then in the United States, you know, I trained, I trained in the U.K. and I trained here in the United States. So in the United States, I became a dietitian of my nutrition degree, which was sort of, I guess, more left brain, if you will. Mm-hmm. So here I graduated with a left brain de- degree, but my food memories and my heart and my art is right brain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so what I found in my work is I wanted to connect the art of food to the plate, but I'm not a chef. So the left brain gives me the science, the right brain gives me the art. And that is how it comes together to field to plate. And I think that you bring up a very good point about what's missing in dietetic programs really across the country is that we really are divorced 
from food as art and food as flavor. Mm-hmm. We're much more focused on the nutrients in the food and right. how that works to prevent or treat disease, and that's a very important piece. It is. But it's that, you know, maybe it's because we've been sort of directed away from the home economics umbrella. And yet home economics was very much based on food as art and, and as being central to the home. Exactly. Um, I mean, I call, I think you've heard me say it, but it, I call home economics homeland security. Right. Because if you can't cook and you don't know where your food comes from and you can't survive, which eating is survival, then we've lost home front security and we actually lose homeland security. So, you know, I'm on a mission along with, I think, so many of us in the food world to try and get implements back into the hands of children, i.e. learning to eat with a knife and fork. But importantly, you know, knives into the hands of young people and older people learning how to cut food, cook food, and prepare food. Right. It's critical. Okay, so you do this great work with food education, very taste-based. And then you also come up with these incredible reports and conference presentations about why Americans eat the way we do, blending the economic picture into it all. Right, exactly. So tell me a little bit about your work with Mintel. How did you get involved with them? What does Mintel do exactly, and what do you do for them? Right, well, just to um, clarify there, I trained with the Mintel Group, and I was with them as a kind of independent contract, if you will, for for five years. It was five-plus years, so from 2003 onwards until 2008. I am no longer with them. That's just we just parted ways as our schedules got busier and busier, and I turned to focus more on the education side. So to answer your question, the Mintel Group um, is a market intelligence company that produces those wonderful market intelligence reports and data for private companies, trade groups, et cetera, et cetera. So I was lucky to work with them in, in that they trained me to write those market intelligence reports. And, of course, my focus for the 99% of the time with them was the food, nutrition, health market. Um, Right. Yeah. Well, it was interesting. In one of the presentations you gave at the American Dietetic Association several years ago, you spoke about the ways in which Americans are truly hurting economically. Mm-hmm. We, we can't afford the homes that are centrally located closer to the city, so we move out to the suburbs, and then that, that ensures us many hours in the car commuting. Yes. And that affects the foods that we choose. Exactly. And I think that there's a real conflict there because we want the, the backyard for our kids, and yet we also we also want to put a good meal on the table, and the two don't come together. Correct. So how do we help consumers with that dilemma? I think you and I have talked about this. I mean, the, the one thing we all agree on with food choice, and particularly in this era where we're seeing people put on more and more weight, is calories in have to equal calories out so that people don't gain weight. But for me, looking at my work, it is about that equation but it's the environment in which we're living in that's influencing or unbalancing that equation that is far more important. I'm very interested in this socioeconomic snapshot of Americans and how that influences our food choice and what we can do about it. We seem to be stuck between a rock and a hard place. Right, We're struggling economically, 
but we're also struggling with diet-related diseases. Mm-hmm. And what's the answer? Boy, you know, wouldn't be we, we'd be wealthy if we had one answer? Yeah. You know, one of the greatest books, to kind of come back, I'm recalling what I did once say, but one of the greatest books, and you know the book, out there that I think kind of gets to the crux of this matter is called Last Child in the Woods. Right. By Richard Louf. Yes. Where he talks about, you know, deeply about how we have to rebuild the environment in which our kids are growing up, and us as adults, too. And that sort of led me to think a lot about some of the answers to that we're seeking are in urban planning and rural planning. Mm-hmm. They're in developing the smart places that we can live or walkable communities or communities where we can interface with each other again. And what, of course, happened sort of in the 80s and the 90s is we deconstructed communities so that people who lived the American dream meant that if you wanted your one acre of land or what have you, then you were going to have to drive way out into the suburbs or the outer rings of the beltways as we have, you know, in, in California and, and out here in the, in the east so that you could live your American dream, you would have to drive a lot further mm-hmm. to have that dream which is dangled in front of us. It still is. Right. We're struggling with that dream right now. And so as we deconstructed communities, we actually put people in, in cars. We created stress on families to not only make enough money to put gas in the car to be able to drive back and forth to work, but we also place that stress on families also to let their kids have a life. So because the kids live, you know, now 10 miles from the playground or whatever, the families then have to rush home, get in the car, and drive their kids back and forth. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're so busy living that we're not putting the time into eating. Right. You know, when you were doing all the market analyst work from Intel, did anything really surprise you? or jump out at you as an aha? I mean, I find that data fascinating. I find any kind of market um, analysis data very interesting about, you know, breaking the population down into different demographic groups and why some demographic groups shop for food in one way and another choose another path. Was there anything from your work with Mintel that you specifically keep with you and blend into the work that you do today? Yeah, I I think... One thing about the work that I did do um, at that time is I was producing a lot of different specialty reports. So, you know, one thing didn't, there was no common theme between everything that I did. But I know recurrent, particularly at that time, to what kind of was influencing people's choices was economics. And I know that might sound ridiculous, but we kept talking back in 2003 and 2004 and 2005 about the economy. And one of the reports I did write was the children and obesity. And it was that report that really gave me the the ahas and the foundation to my thinking that, uh, as I started earlier with, which is it is about the calories, but it's not just about the calories. (laughs) You know, it is about the world in which we're living in and things as important as the fact that median household income is basically stagnated, but the cost of living hasn't. Right. So that that's the consistent thing that I would see as a result of doing the, the research I did with them and the continued research now. We've only got so much money, and more and more and more 
segments of our life are taking more and more of that money, and so there's less available for food, or that's the choice we've made. Right. And yet the foods that we recommend tend not to be the ones that are subsidized. Correct. They tend to be pricier in the market if they're even available. Correct. And so what do we tell our clients? What do we tell our clients? (laughs) The truth, Melinda? (laughs) Yeah. You know, and I think we were having a discussion on one of the listeners earlier this week about... Yes, we were. Very much about that, what do we tell our clients? And I think one of the points I made is that the food system, if we could tell the truth, the food system is so complex, how do you break it down into bites that people can understand? Right. You know? And, 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 and it's uh, even our academic friends are challenged to make it easier for Americans to understand. And so I kind of look at that and say, what do we tell our clients? We put food in their mouths to open their ears. We teach them, you know, about fruits and vegetables, if you will, but we don't teach them from the standpoint of this is good for you. You'll feel better if you do this. You teach them this is the difference a day makes. This is the difference one-minute-old tomato versus a two-day versus a two-week-old tomato makes to you. And why does this taste different? Because it was grown locally. And, you know, so you start with these tiny bites. Instead of saying, we need to eat three to five to seven, you know, servings of this or that a day doesn't mean anything. Exactly. Flavor, flavor makes the connection to local, and local helps you understand a tiny bit the first rung of the food system. So we have a long, 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 long way to go. We do. But I'm quite excited about where we are in food right now in the United States with the, uh, you know, our local foods movement. It's, Mm -hmm. it's, It's a great step forward. If you're just joining us, we are speaking with Amanda Archibald, who is a registered dietitian and the owner of Field to Plate, which is a fantastic organization that teaches people about food and nutrition through taste, a novel concept. And I love what you said, food in the mouth to open the ears. Mm-hmm. You know, I, it's, yeah. it's great because when you're tasting things and they taste great, and I know this from your workshops, people are very receptive to learn about what they're tasting. Exactly. You, can, you have a choice. You can do a lecture, and we can show the science behind what we're talking about. And that's important. I think you and I and anyone in our field or in the broader field recognizes that science has to benchmark what we're talking about. But then you put that aside and say, okay, let's get our hands dirty. Because unless you can taste what I'm talking about, it remains a piece of paper or a, fig- or a memory, right. you know, of data. Right. One of the points that you brought up in this discussion that you mentioned earlier online was we have a challenge in front of us, and that is to help people have the confidence to try new things yes. and to overcome those barriers. You know, the I think we describe children as being neophobes, where they're very reluctant to try new things. And there are strategies, of course, to overcome that. What are some of your strategies to overcome that fear of the unknown? The fear of the unknown, That's our goal in education is to break down the barriers of lack of familiarity right. with food. So what I did, and you've, of course, participated in this, Melinda, is I reached out to Chef Deborah Madison and said, okay, you have a brilliant mind in food, which I appreciate, but we have a big challenge in nutrition education, which is overcoming, helping people overcome these barriers. So our work together was to look at things like, well, specifically produce up until this point in time, and say, 
how can you put together produce like fruits or vegetables into flavor families so that if somebody's palate is exclusively sweet, which is fine, you know, physiologically people can taste sweet versus sour versus bitter and be more sensitive. But how can we put these produce items into families so that if you love sweet corn, I can help you find another vegetable that might be sweet so it's not such a shock for you. Mm-hmm. And so we did. We created flavor families. So a sweet flavor family may have parsnips and corn and tomato and beets, believe it or not, and winter squash. And then, you know, an earthy family might have collards and kale and, you know, you can taste the earthiness there. And so what we did there is we created a comfort zone for people to try something. And I have, across the country, played with these flavor families where people are blindfolded. Mm. And, and so we'll put food in their mouths, and they'll say, they'll say, well, it's sweet. And when you tell them it's a beet afterwards, there's this little look of shock and awe and horror, you know, that they taste the beet and they actually dare to like it. Mm-hmm. And so that's a perfect example of helping people overcome barriers to lack of familiarity and sometimes we as educators are the obstacles. We're the ones in the way because <laughs> mm-hmm. we haven't found a creative way to help people have food confidence. You know, it's really interesting that you mentioned the blindfolding experiment that you do with your adults. <laughs> I recommend that for children. In mm-hmm. fact, I used to, my children used to beg me to blindfold them and do these little taste tests. I think it's a great way to get people to try new foods, and it's a lot of fun. It is. It is. Well, that's what I find about your workshops is that they are a lot of fun and that people are getting together, they're cooking together, they're trying new things together. You've got that peer pressure. You know, well, my my friend over here just tried it, so I will too. Exactly. We're always kids. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. You know, and one of the messages that uh, we, we communicate, of course, back and forth all the time on email, but one of the things that you had mentioned was that you wanted to talk about Chris Anderson's research presented in Wired magazine. Oh, yes. You want to talk about that? Well, it, yeah, it's a big topic, and basically, so we're flipping back to my work as an analyst here and cross-mapping into why I think this local foods movement, or let's call it the green movement for, for lack, of a better term, lack of a better term for right now, but what makes us think that that movement is here to stay, that, you know, we'll move further and further into um, buying artisan products and keeping, keeping foods local and that our local farmers will survive and thrive. So as an analyst, you look for trends, the interlinked trends that will kind of come together. I call it tiny pieces loosely joined. So I look for research to support that idea. And Chris Anderson is brilliant. He's the editor of Wired magazine. And last year, he gave me an idea that sort of supported why we're going to see more sustainable food systems. And if I, I'll see how fast I can get through this. So essentially, he wrote the book, The Long Tail. And the long tail is a brilliant analysis, actually, of the, of the music industry. But what comes out of his analysis, he says, if you walk into Borders or Barnes & Noble, for example, and you see Tom Friedman's newest book at the front of the store, what he'll tell you is those blockbuster books are what bring people into the store. But they're not what gives the stores the greatest amount of money. Where the stores get the greatest amount of money is when you then wander around the store and you pick up a CD if there are any left anymore, or you might get a cup of coffee, or you might buy another book, and you happen to walk out with the Tom Friedman book. They actually make more money on the peripheral sales than they do on the blockbusters. Hmm. 
And so he went on to say the money is in the onesies and the twosies and the bits and the bites. So to fast forward, basically, as I looked at that and said, well, what he's saying is that successful companies are the ones that can sell their products in the moms and pops and, you know, the, the tiny niches all over the country. And so I started thinking about that in terms of sustainable farming systems. And it is true that if our local farmers can find a niche or handhold with local restaurants, you know, local, their community-supported farms, with a farm-to-school program, with something that is going to carry their product forward, then you've got lots of little pieces loosely joined. Mm-hmm. And you've got that relationship piece built in. Exactly. And I think that's really the magic of it. And I don't think that it's a fly-by-night kind of trend because I think people are realizing what they've been missing. And those exactly. relationships are key. Exactly. And if you look at it even further, these local foods movements, they're becoming more and more entrenched. Again, as I mentioned, like the farm-to-school program, which is what the idea has been around for years. But it's gotten such traction of late as more and more local stakeholders say, this is important to childhood wellness. It's important to our country, but it's important to our local economy, too. Exactly. And that's what brings it all together. Yeah. The economic piece and the health piece and the food piece. Everything's connected. Well, I have to ask you about your comparison between what you see for school food here and what you see in Europe. And I know you've led dietitians abroad on these school food trips where you look and see what is school lunch like in France, for example. Tell me where we need to go in the United States. Well, you know, France, of course, is a totally different country and it's not a totally different animal. It's It's a different place where the French, as we're talking about the French, have a very different relationship with food. Mm-hmm. And that relationship with food starts with quality. As Michael Pollan has said in his latest book, eat less, pay more, or pay more, eat less. And that's exactly what happens with school lunch. In the program we looked at, the family, the cost per child per lunch was €7.50. So let's call that 10 bucks. And a lot of that was anteed up through the parents. They felt, even though it's hard, that they needed to put their money where their kids' mouths mouths are or mouth is, and they did. They put it into school lunch. Doesn't mean to say that some of those school lunch programs aren't facing some of the same challenges we do here in the United States with, you know, poorer quality or maybe uh, mass distributors getting involved in the school system. But what hasn't changed is that intricate relationship between food and the French. And that's what we're trying to rebuild here in the United States, that relationship with food. Mm-hmm. They and have it. They are trying to conserve it, but they have that. So you know, that would be number one. <laughs> and don't those students also eat off of real plates with yes, forks and knives? They, they, the, the, yes, they do. They, they, the, the school system that we went to, went to two different ones in two different years, close to each other but separate districts, if you will, they eat um, a four-course lunch. and about How much that, time? And, you know, and the greatest picture I have, which I have to send you, is the kids, when the day they had a beets, grated beets and a vinaigrette, where, you know, every tongue in the, in, in the, um, <laughs> right. the dining facility was red. Right. But the cool thing is, to the point about united around food, reuniting around food, is that they had a system where the older kids would eat with the younger kids, and they would help 
the younger kids, along with like the, the kind of uh, lunch monitors, if you will, they would help the kids serve each other. They would help the kids eat or cut their food. So it was like this progression through the ages where the older helped the younger. How so much the younger time ones, did they have, Amanda? How many what? How much time? They had an hour and a half for lunch. Did that include recess? Yes. So they had recess afterwards. Oh, wow. I know. It, 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 it was wonderful. And, you know, all that food was cooked from scratch, period. Oh. Now, they did it in a central kitchen. And this is, these are very small places, so we have to honor the geography of France. But those meals were then dispatched to the surroundings of elementary schools in this case. Wow. Amanda, you know what? I knew this would happen. <laughs> Whenever I have a conversation with a smart friend, the time evaporates. I want you to give our listeners a send-off. A charge. A charge. Put food in your mouth because it'll open your ears to a wonderful world of flavor. Most of it grown really close to your plate. That's beautiful. <laughs> Thank you so much. We've been talking to Amanda Archibald, a fellow dietitian and owner of Field to Plate with, with wonderful food and taste education. Amanda, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I want to thank our listeners for joining us as well and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri.